You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In Season 5, members discuss behavior with Alexis Hennessy. Good morning. I'm excited to be here today with Vicki Nishioka. Um, we are going to be talking today about equity in school and climate and discipline, and I am just so thankful to you for joining us. Vicki, um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do within the realm of education. Oh, thank you, Alex. I would be happy to do that. My name is Vicki Nishioka, and I work for Education Northwest. And I, my focus throughout my career has been on supporting teachers and students in building relationships and building warm, um, welcoming climates, and so especially around inclusion for students um, who are um, who have disabilities and also are in, engaged in behaviors that, that may be challenging to teachers. So that's been a focus. And what goes with that, of course, is helping students and teachers learn how to build relationships and how to, how to build and practice social emotional learning skills that are so important to, um, to building those relationships in warm climates. Think for adults and children, right? We, we right. all need to build capacity within those skills. Mm-hmm. So tell me um, a little bit about what does that look like in your day to day? Because you're not housed in schools, but you do work with schools. Am I correct in that? You are correct in that, but I started out in schools. I worked for almost 20 years in this perfect job that would be hard to replicate. Half my job is operating um projects and schools and doing direct service um, and teaching for um, in school programs and residential treatment programs and treatment foster care and wraparound services. So had a, just this rich experience with working with very um, with families that with very different needs, but also with many different um, um, settings and community providers. The other half of my job was really coordinating training and doing research to learn how what practices are working and how do we then push that out into the field. And then I taught um, and did continued that work at the University of Oregon, teaching undergraduate and graduate programs in classroom management and and also also developing programs and doing research not only in Oregon, but across the U.S. And now I'm at Education Northwest and I had the opportunity to, again, continue that work and apply it. And I think what I've done at Education Northwest, I've done, I also teach a little bit um, up until recently, a graduate and undergraduate programs, because it's nice to keep your... Just can't get out of the classroom, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, and then um, have worked for a number of years at facilitating research practice partnerships where we work alongside people doing that hard work and figuring out what are what's the training, what's the research, what are some tools yeah. that would make your job a little bit easier, and also um, doing added policy research, which which really gave me appreciation of how important policy is and how we think about it and implement it is to, um, to not only growing this work and making what we do better, but also sustaining those good efforts. So true. So true. And, and that policy can feel so removed on your day to day when you're working directly with the learners, right? So as an educator in a classroom or working in um, even, you know, in a, in a district office type position, that policy can feel so far away. 
Um, but the reality is that that policy is what is guiding the ways in which we interact with our learners and our colleagues and our families every day. And, and um, I think that that can sometimes be lost in, in the connection between the decisions that educators are making in the moment that the forward-facing client, right, the family, the learner, the colleagues see, um, and where it's coming from and what that decision might be based in. So that's a, a really interesting and rich conversation, I think, to have. And I don't actually know that all educators really consciously understand how many of their decisions moment to moment are actually guided by the policy that they've got kind of in the back of their head. Would you say that that's true? I, I think that's true. I think that they, uh, that there is this really, um, the, there's, and there's been a great deal of policy reform in Oregon related to school mm. discipline specifically, and um, where they there's been strong guidance from the state to move away from policies that were based on zero tolerance policies, where we came in with really prescriptive types of um, reactions to discipline incidents that really what we began to see from the data increase the frequency of those incidents and increase the, the frequency of students being removed from classroom environments for minor um, nonviolent behaviors like disruption and that we we saw that also what really increased was the discipline disparities related to race that we began to see um, that the that students of color, especially Black, American, Indian, and Latinx students were being suspended at rates that went much higher than um, than their white peers and Asian peers, and that the research showed that there really wasn't a difference in behavior, it was a difference in perception of what those behaviors might mean. And so that, that just prompted us to really think differently, is zero tolerance working? And if it's not, what should we do? And so Oregon began to switch their reforms because we because the the goal was to increase student achievement and graduation rates and if you remove students from classroom instruction their um, their capacity and ability to to graduate really decreases each time they have a three-day suspension so I think that that became um, a really important motivator for Oregon as well as the whole issue of equity and let's really begin to build warm inclusive climates I think though that what happens with policy they often set these benchmarks of what they would like schools to achieve but the really hard important work is how do we begin to support teachers and schools and shifting from um, in this case, zero tolerance policies to um, to ways of building school climate and dealing with um, discipline and more proactive ways to prevent um, school discipline incidents. And how do we build um, classroom and climates and school climates that are welcoming, that are that really build those strong relationships, especially for students and teachers that may come very come from very different backgrounds. And how do we build um, expectations and responses that really teach the the um, students and have adults model the skills that we want to we want to be represented in that school climate so I think that that's the hard work that has to happen and it really is a bit of a process but unfortunately I think sometimes policy and those uh, those shifts in practice are really hard to coordinate and it, they've been very hard to coordinate those last two or three years for obvious reasons. Oof, yeah, these these last three three years or so have really shifted just the way in which 
even just the world of education works. But I want to go back for one second before we jump forward into that. And um, would you maybe give a quick definition of a zero tolerance policy? It is my hope that maybe we end up with some early service or pre-service teachers that listen, um, or maybe some folks that are not educators that are just wanting to to learn more about the world of education and, and how we're working these days. So can you explain what zero tolerance is? And also, um, maybe if you're ready or willing, kind of where did zero tolerance come from a little bit, right? How did we end up at this place of zero tolerance um, that kind of guided a lot of the disciplinary rules and regulations, both in Oregon and I think nationwide? That's such a great question. And, and I'm going to reach back in time to the 70s. Yes. And I think where zero tolerance really began and to take root was in response to the the tragic school shootings and one of them the starting in Oregon and and at Thurston High School and so I think that the the first thought because it was such a traumatic event was we need to stop it at all costs and we need to begin to remove students from school and as we began to um, and so zero tolerance policies policies went into place where um, that gave the discretion to schools to suspend, um, to do a three-day suspension from almost any kind of referral to the office. And uh, what um, what Oregon also did was they, they did this very broad um, policy at that point in time of what constituted a weapon or a lookalike weapon. And so what began to happen, it began to be, that was applied to all grade levels. So um, we would get calls back, and this was decades ago, so I want to make sure that yeah. people understand that. And we would get calls from principals who were concerned because they had a state policy giving them guidance and saying there, this is saying that I need to suspend or remove this kindergarten student because mm -hmm. they were um, pointing their finger at another child. And we know that that is, uh, we need to correct that, but perhaps removing him from school is not not the, the correction that will teach a different way of resolving or playing or resolving a conflict, but that's what state policy is guiding us to do. So some of this happened back then. And as over time, what we began to see is that more and more suspensions were being used um, for for those minor types of offenses. And the problem is that once we remove a student, regardless of age, then we began to build a disconnection for them with their school. It disrupts the relationships. It interrupts and that, especially not only with other peers, but with their teacher, that's so important. And it puts them behind in terms of academic performance. And we began to see that most of the equity issues were around suspensions for minor or disruptive behaviors, that for those really big major types of events of concern where we might um, remove a student just so that we have time to assess the situation that we yeah. didn't see as much uh, equity. And those are really a very small portion of suspensions and ex expulsions that occur. So the real, the real focus is how do we begin to deal with and help people to be, um, to build school climates where of uh, that's, um, that's, that's based on mutual co cooperation, mutual respect, uh, and um, really engagement of students in in learning and in the way that we want them um, to be. So I think that that becomes that's becomes the focus of, of what um, we do. And if we do that, 
think of the relief to in the amount of time and effort that it takes to send students to the office uh, and then be remove them to school and reintegrate them back into school. That I think that it's a win-win for everybody if we can begin to think about shifting practices for the, the behaviors that don't really necessarily need um, suspensions. And, and one of the things that, that has emerged as a promising practice is, is using discipline responses and I that are culturally responsive. So I like to think yeah. about it not as behavior, but a discipline incident because a discipline is usually an interaction and it could be a misunderstanding or a difference in thinking about how you're, how you're learning, um, your learning style and that some students, when they, when they're learning, they have to, they want to talk to people. They want to do it as a group effort that they, um, that that is, and that may be viewed as disruptive, um, in, in some classroom settings. So I think it's really beginning to have some of those shared agreements about how we move forward. The other thing I think that becomes really important is thinking about, um, as we think about discipline incidents is that they, especially in relation to the last few years is that, um, students and teachers come to school and, but are affected by the events around them that, that are affected by, um, interactions they may have had that morning. So I think really taking into account and really helping people to think through what, what do we do if we're, if we are, if we need a little bit of a break in the classroom, do we have a way for students to take that break? Do we have a way for teachers to kind of take that break as well? And then how do we help teachers and students, um, and it is a two-way street, build relationships that they're coming from very different cultural backgrounds and lived experiences. And so how do we begin to help them reach across that difference and build strong relationships? Mm -hmm. So that really is, if we can get, so that's been really the focus of the work that we've been doing. And I would say I'm using we because I have not done this work alone. I've done this work in partnership with colleagues, but also with many districts in Oregon that are very interested and strengthening their school climate so that feels welcoming to every student and every adult. Yeah, I mean, I just want to stop and and remind our listeners that you can go back and rewind that and listen again because everything that Vicky said there, there was so much that was so powerful right there, and Vicky and what you said, and and I just want to bring light to a couple of of words you used, which sounds so minimal in the bulk of what you said, which was so incredible to listen to and and to to like, you can't, y'all can't see me. I'm on a podcast, but I was just nodding along and, 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 and affirming everything that she was saying, but those, those terms, cooperation and interaction and respect, right. Really bringing light to the fact that every behavior incident truly is an interaction between two or more people. And so um, I think one of the things that I love to focus on as someone who works as a behavior consultant and tries to coach folks in this is it, behavior is not a one-sided thing, right? There's something that one person in a dyad or triad puts out into the space, and then there's a reaction that is that is gained from what's put out there. And so that can be as easy as you know a behavior of handing a pencil across the table and someone else reaching for the pencil and receiving it, that is in fact a behavior interaction. And so we often, I think, are drawn, you know, towards connecting behavior to the negative, right? Towards the disciplinary actions. And we can sometimes forget to look at what the strengths of a learner are and, and what behaviors they're putting into a space that are actually incredibly positive or could be used in an incredibly positive way. So 
I wonder, you know, I, I heard you speak to kind of about the past couple of years, and I think that it's a really important point in this conversation to just bring forward that this is not new work. This is work that we have been doing here in the state for many, many, many years, across the country for many years. But, you know, as recently as I remember in 2016, OEA bringing a spotlight to behavior in the classroom and disruptions in the classroom. And I remember that being a, a might have even been, been like a a mission or theme for, for OEA for the year at that point. Um, I'm sure someone will correct me in the show notes if I'm off, but, um, but I, I remember it being a topic of discussion and actually being covered in the news quite a bit in, in 2016. And I'm wondering your thoughts on, you know, sometimes when we start to bring some focus to something and then there's kind of a, a, a brick wall put up in front of us. And unfortunately in the past couple of years, I think the pandemic has really put up a, a really strong, uh, very quick brick wall that kind of threw us all into a reactive place. We just had to kind of quickly change the way in which education was happening in order to try to bring access to as many learners as we could. So I'm wondering your thoughts on kind of the trajectory of changing and shifting practice and supporting educators um, and policymakers in really understanding and embodying those proactive strategies and supports that we can bring to schools, both where do we stand with um, what are what is Education Northwest kind of sharing with um, the community partners as far as proactive strategies, but also, you know, how did the pandemic impact the trajectory of that work and kind of where are we now as we return to in-person education? Where do we have to kind of back up to and, and pick up to move forward comfortably together? Because I think it's it's hard to be in education right now, regardless of behavior, right? Just getting back on track post-pandemic, but then you add to it this really heavy emotionally and just energy-wise work of trying to bring proactive strategies to this to this arena. And that's a lot to ask our educators to, to handle, um, while also meeting all the academic expectations and dealing with all of the new curriculum and, and, and. So um, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I, that's a great question, but I have to tell you that we are resuming our work. We, we never um, stopped our work with districts, mm. and we are still continuing to do that, not only within this state, but across the country. And I, I'm just I'm very grateful, and this is why I like to partner with um, with educators, both administrators and teachers and um, paraprofessionals and other um, education support professionals because there's such an energy there and they're bringing back this positivity and energy that's so important. But I do, I do think there's some things that we need, we always think about, but we need to think about more clearly now. And one is that we, we should focus on relationships. And part of that is making sure that we are giving um, very authentic, positive praise to students at a very high rate. And we have research around that, of course, that every highlight that word authentic authentic yeah. it has to be authentic it can't be you know the kids pick up on that so very quickly I love that you brought attention to that they do they if you say good job too many times they will look at you or tell you that's not very <laughs> that's not very reinforcing I don't find that positive so but uh, but I think recognizing and pointing out part of teaching is pointing out what exactly what they're doing well. And if if children, especially for children and adolescents who have trouble with understanding social cues or have trouble with understanding um, the 
what's the social situations in a school environment. It's very important to, to point those out so that they can make those connections and understand. And, and also to provide praise in a way that is um, that aligns with their cultural values and beliefs. And I think that that becomes very, very important as well. And to do that, I think we have to begin to look, and we have research around this too, is that we, that if we set up schools and classrooms to do more collective types of cultural um, um, orientations, meaning that we co-create expectations with um, students and perhaps their families for younger students, that we begin to co-create with the routines in the school and ask for um for students' input, then it's everybody's community, and then begin just to be very clear about how um, we should handle disagreements. How should we mm-hmm. handle and recognition? How should we handle um, problem solving or and those? And then how can students or adults who feel like they need a moment to just take a breath and relax? How what are what are the strategies that are okay within a classroom and school environment? So really changing and shifting from very adult um, oriented systems to one that is shared with students and really one that values relationships. What we know from research is that students um, really begin to build um, a sense of belonging and that they matter in those environments and also adults in those environments tend to build a stronger sense of work satisfaction and less stress and so it becomes a win-win and then that really is and what we know is a strong relationship with teachers is such a protective factor and so important in, in um, students engaging in in, um, in really their best learning. The other thing that I think is important to do is really begin to make sure that we have high expectations for all students and that we begin to check um, perhaps some bias that we might have um, for student groups or students student and how we how we do that is really through perspective taking. It's really getting to know that student on an individual basis so that we understand and see them as a person. And um, and if you do that, I think you will build um, a relationship that really begins to engender empathy and then really begins to engender uh, a feeling of cooperation. Now, what students tell me is, and what, when I, if I were hearing this, I would hear, I don't have time to do that because I have so many things yeah. to do. So that was going to be my question is, you know, <laughs> I'm a classroom teacher and I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm going, yes, Vicki, this sounds great. And I have 32 kindergartners in front of me. How do you That's expect right. me to do that? Or I see 180 kids, you know, middle school kids across my seven periods a day. How do you expect me to do this? So what are those strategies that that um, you and Education Northwest are trying to help teachers to really understand and feel comfortable with that allow us to build those relationships and and begin to dig into that work of com- creating community and, and therefore bringing all of our learners and families in? Well, I think the best thing to do is ask the experts, and that's the students and teachers who are doing that hard work, and asking them, how does this happen, and how we can build in that into our day and build that into our values that drive our culture. And so I think that's that's an important piece, because then you learn um, about some things, and they could be small things that, um, that students may interpret as, I'm invisible, I'm not important, or that teacher doesn't yeah. like me. And I know if a teacher heard 
that that they would know that was not what I was intending to communicate, but that is intent. Yeah. That is what the student heard. So first of all, is beginning to open that conversation, and you can do that in a classroom setting by setting by setting some of those social norms with your students. You can also do what we call listening sessions or empathy groups with families and students to to learn more about that. But one of the things that that students tell me, and this is it, these are younger students as well as students who are older is please call me by the name that I want in the way that I want to be named. We still find in most groups that people are, um, that teachers may be changing names because it's a, it's difficult to say. And so I think that, that students find that disrespectful. What, what students say is we don't expect people to teachers to talk to us every day, but, but if you only talk to the whole class all the time and you never, you don't take a moment to ask me about myself then um, then I feel overlooked. And it doesn't have to be over um, every day. And what teachers tell me is I, who do this and who, um, who students and other teachers have said do this well, they say, well, I asked them about um, their family life or I know that they, if they are in sports, I asked them about the game that they were just in. So I asked them about some things that, that, are, that may occur outside of the classroom as they come in the door and I make sure that I'm at the door greeting students as they come in and saying hi. And, at the um, door, Vicki. It yeah. is amazing. That was one of my favorite practices when I worked in a public mm-hmm. high school with uh, you know, 2,500 kids or, or more, I think. Um, and that at the door, I tell you, what you can learn about kids in passing and then just seeing your face right there, even for those handful of minutes between classes, it is amazing what you can learn. And the kids that will come by your hallway because they know you're standing out there, um, even if their class is on the other yeah. side of, of the school, you know, so that I can't, I cannot bring light to the fact that there are these tiny little behavior changes in the adults in a space that really do not take much time at all to just be present in the space with the learners, right? Um, And I think that in parenting, this is a big conversation as well, right? Put down the phone and be present. And that's not, it's not accusatory. It's not, it's just how we all end up in our own little bubbles and we kind of function and do the things that are important to us. But by by stopping and breathing and being present in a space and observing the learners as they walk by, um, the way in which they're holding their bodies, the way in which they're moving about the hallways, how they're avoiding or interacting with peers, there's so much that you can learn from those brief moments and then um, you know, pick up on it for those personal connections and conversations that are deeper than, you know, did you have a good weekend, right? Um, so I think that that's a really important thing to bring forward is I imagine that many listeners are saying, yes, this sounds great. And also that it doesn't sound feasible. I don't know how to do this. But um, I think starting with one small action, bringing yourself to the door, being present at the drop-off area when buses are unloading for our younger learners or even for our older learners or, you know, uh, staying a couple minutes after school if you can and, and going outside to that track meet or the practice or the whatever, just for less than five minutes, being a face that they see can sometimes change a learner's willingness to engage with you and, and they might be more willing to then share something a little more personal with you in that moment and it just opens the door to that connection and building that relationship and 
you know, word travels, right? You become that teacher who shows investment and then the kids pass that amongst themselves and, and they really do uh, do the marketing work for you and they, they just show up after that. Do you find that to be true with a lot of the teachers you're working with that very small changes to what they're doing result in really big outcomes? Uh, yes, and I, I think so. And it's not just... Um... But sometimes they're hard. And I think one of the I, I think one of the things that I would encourage people to think about is is that ratio of, of just positive interactions that you're having with students compared to um, to the number of redirections or even requests that they give to students that really it should be five um, positive interactions to every redirection or request that you give to a student. And that is a very real skill. And it's not a skill that is, um, I, I think is valued in our culture um, as it is um, internationally. And, and so I think the only way to get there is to really have somebody come in and do observations of you and give feedback and for you to check yourself because it is a skill that's hard to maintain. But if you do that, then I think it changes how students well, not I think, I know it changes how students will, will hear. That if you are somebody, if, if they're interacting with a teacher who has less and, and maybe has a one-to-one -one kind of ratio of, and then they may hear redirections as a punishment. They will hear it as a criticism and they won't hear it as teaching help. And that becomes very different. And and in in classrooms where you may have um, a high degree of, of kind of negative interactions among students as well as um, between teachers and students, then that creates anxiety and nobody can do their best learning if they are feeling anxious. So I think that we really have to pay attention to, to what is the ratio of positive interactions in our classroom versus um, corrections and redirections. And if it is due to um, um, behavior, then what we, behavioral choices, then we need to deal with that by being clear about um, what are the alternatives and, and teaching social emotional learning skills. If it's because they're not understanding the instruction, then we need to scaffold that instruction a little bit more. So I think that it really is beginning to really make that a central goal within a school is that we will have a positive um, environment where most of our, our interactions are positive and affirming and respectful. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one more question, which is, um, if if the listeners only took kind of one thought away from this, right? Maybe this was a lot of information. Maybe these thoughts around disparities in in discipline are new to them. That's that's okay. Everyone starts their journey somewhere, right? So we all have to dig in wherever we are. If you could say one thing to a listener today um, that you think just is an important takeaway as they go back into the classroom on Monday, something to think about or bring focus to, what would you say that should be? I think the, the first thing is making sure that you are engaging students in, um, in, in 
creating some of the expectations and some of the routines and engaging students um, through really reaching out to each and every one of them um, to build a positive relationship that is not just centered on them being a student in their classroom. So I think um, it's small things that make a huge difference to, to students are not asking, but having a, a relationship with an adult. The other thing I would encourage schools to do is if is to really think through are are there students in your school that really don't have a link to an adult that's meaningful, that's not just contingent on them being assigned to their classroom and making intentional efforts to make to assign or to create a relationship with that student with adults. So I think that beginning to really focus on making sure that everybody has um, a caring relationship with an adult in a school is a is really the first place to start. I love that. Uh, one of my favorite activities with my group of colleagues at a location I was working at was putting all of the students' names up on some paper and moving around the space with those colored tag sale dots and uh, and putting a dot next to each kid that you knew something really specific about. Not, you know, I know they're in the fourth grade or I know they have a dog, but, you know, something a little deeper that you had a fact or a connection to that kid that was specific. And to really see that discipline, I'm sorry, that disparity between the kids that had, you know, 10 or 20 dots that were the open kid that connected with everybody or was really social and that kid that only had, you know, one little dot next to their name or maybe no dots and really bringing that focus and saying, okay, what can I do? That's an immediate impact that I can have, right? I can immediately go and begin to make a connection with that kid. And my individual effort to connect with that kid could be what makes or breaks that student's yeah. uh, day, the following day, the following week, right? Um, and, you know, to tie back to to the disconnection piece, what we know about um, repeated discipline interactions is that that often has a tie to mental health and self-esteem, right? And so that that individual positive interaction could be what, what keeps that kid showing up at all. Um, and so I, I love what you've brought to our discussion today. I've had such a, a it's been such a pleasure to, to talk with you about this. I think that I could talk with you all day about this and, and I certainly would love to, but I'm sure our listeners have, um, have enjoyed as well. And, and you've given us such, such a depth of information here to look into. So um, Education Northwest is located in Southwest Portland. Is that correct? We're actually in um, in Northeast Portland. We moved our offices, and oh, so okay. uh, and during during the pandemic. But we are certainly just a, a phone call or email away. So please reach out if you have questions. We would love to hear them. We are um, so committed to this to the equity work, and we really believe that the fa foundation for that is really building equitable and welcoming some school climate. So would love to partner with, with folks as they move forward. Well, I know I will be headed over to the website, uh, certainly to check out the resources that are there, and I hope our listeners will too. Vicki, I cannot thank you enough for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure to learn from you and learn with you and uh, to present all this information to our listeners. And it is my hope that we will talk again on future episodes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, th the thanks are mine. Thank you so much. And um, and I want to thank all the listeners for doing the really hard work and the contributions and commitment they have to our students and families. It's so, so important. 
so true. All right, all of you listeners, thanks for joining us today. It has been a pleasure to bring this conversation to you. Um, Please remember that uh, you can't take care of others unless you are first taking care of yourself. So as you dig into this work and expose yourself to more of the um, heavy work that is being in education right now, please remember to also take some time to yourself, refresh, recoup, and then come back re-energized. And we will see you next time. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit our webpage at grow.oregoned.org.